We're talking about worship, and we've already identified two things about worship. One is that worship is to be done corporately, that we come together with other people to do it, but also that worship is to be done privately. In fact, the two are very closely related. The effectiveness of corporate worship is directly related to the depth of personal worship. Now, listen very carefully to that. The effectiveness of corporate worship is directly related to the depth of personal worship. If if we've still got the idea that church is somewhere you go and you just sort of show up and the worship service goes on and you sort of try and get into it, or maybe you do and maybe you don't, then it probably won't work. If we are developing a daily life of devotion, then out of that will come a flow of worship when we come together. But also, when we come to a worship experience corporately, that in and of itself becomes a stimulus for daily worship. And so the two are inextricably bound up in each other. Now last week, we put particular emphasis on worship as devotional life. We talked about the fact that worship is a response to God's self-revelation. Worship is a response to God's self-revelation. And he reveals himself in a number of ways, but we identified two. Number one, he reveals himself in the created world, the world he has created. And we need to have eyes to see it. Earth is crammed with heaven, you remember? Elizabeth Barrett Browning said, in every bush aflame with God. Those who see it take off their shoes and worship. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries and daub their natural faces unaware. In other words, the point is that we need to develop eyes to see God at work in the world all around us and then to worship spontaneously. But then the second way that he reveals himself to us is in his word. And we need to be structuring daily devotions in the Word so that he is able to speak to us. And out of what he is saying to us about himself, about his person, about his purposes, about his promises, he generates a response, and that response is worship. The structured response to the Word, the spontaneous response to the world. Now, the other side of that coin, of course, is the prayer dimension. For prayer is our conversation with him. Prayer is us responding to what he is saying to us. We don't don't read the Bible without praying. We don't pray without reading the Bible if we're going to develop a balanced worship experience. And so let me talk to you about worship and prayer. Now, what better place to do that than the passage of Scripture in which the Lord Jesus in response to what his disciples said, taught them to pray. You remember that his disciples, this is recorded for us in Luke 11, a more or less parallel passage in Matthew 6, that the Lord Jesus, in response to his disciples' request, who after they had observed him praying, said, Lord, teach us to pray. He said, okay, when you pray, pray, and then he gave them what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. Now, there are two versions of the Lord's Prayer, one in Luke 11, one in Matthew 6. They differ. They're they're different. This would suggest 
that he taught this praying model on different occasions. But it also suggests that we should not just learn it by rote and simply recite it. That is legitimate. If there's nothing else that we can think to pray, by all means pray the Lord's Prayer by rote. But I believe that he gave us a model in order that we might take the principles of it and apply it in our own prayer life. Now, let me give you three ideas concerning prayer that we can glean from this particular passage of Scripture. First of all, prayer is a declaration of deficiency. Prayer is a declaration of deficiency. This was certainly the case as far as the disciples were concerned. We know after the resurrection uh, that it was customary for Jesus' disciples to go up to the temple at the time of prayer. There would be time of prayer three times a day in the temple. And they were religiously committed to that. So they, they knew what it was to sort of engage in a formal act of prayer in a regular worship service. But when they watched Jesus pray, they said, you need to teach us to pray. You need to teach. There's a difference, you see, between saying prayers and praying. People sometimes say to me, will you say a prayer for me? And they look rather surprised when I say, what about? What, what, what do you want me to pray? You know, who do you want me to pray to? What, what is it you've got in mind? In other words, sometimes we, we've got the idea that if we are saying a prayer, that that automatically is praying. And the disciples understood the, the deficiency in their own lives when they watched Jesus pray. Did, did you know that sometimes he stayed up all night to pray? <laughs> well, what does that do for your deficiency? Did, did you know that it says that it, sometimes he rose up a great while before day to pray? Do you know that, that when he was under tremendous duress, he instinctively prayed and asked his disciples to pray with him? Did, did, did you know that when he had major decisions to make, that the first thing he did was, was pray? Well, you see, all, the, all these things are indicative of the way Jesus prayed. Now, his disciples watched this and they said, wow, we, we haven't even started. We, we, we don't know diddly about prayer compared to him. And so the very request that they might learn to pray was a declaration of deficiency. And I think probably many of us would have to say, there is a major deficiency in my prayer life. I would, I would certainly have to say that. But there's another thing that we notice in this statement. You see, his disciples didn't just say to Jesus, teach us to pray. They then said, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. As John taught his disciples. Now... The rabbis in those days would have a little group of disciples around them. Rabbi meant teacher, disciple meant pupil. And one of the things that the rabbis would always do to their disciples was teach them a specific prayer that they used. It was sort of their little group prayer. And apparently John had done this with his disciples, but Jesus hadn't. And so when the disciples of Jesus looked at Jesus, they realized how deficient they were in praying. But when they looked at John the Baptist and his disciples, that simply undergirded it. And one of the things that will happen to us is this, that sometimes when we look at our own prayer life compared to what we read of other people praying, it, it simply underlines this sense of deficiency. Now, I'm not here to make anybody squirm. But, but simply to point out that, that when we, we begin to think in terms of praying, we have to admit that the very desire to pray is a statement of deficiency. I'll tell you why I think this is. You know the old saying, the devil trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees? You know that saying? You don't know that saying? You do now. 
The devil trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. If that is true, then one of the major objectives of the old devil is to stop us from praying. And he thinks of all kinds of ways of doing it. And, and so we, we, need to, we need to look at the example of other people in, in order that we might sense the deficiency that may be there. Now, we don't know anything about John the Baptist and his disciples, how they prayed, but let me tell you about George Whitfield. George Whitfield used to go to bed at 10 o'clock every night so that he could be up at 4 o'clock in the morning because 4 o'clock was the time he prayed. John Wesley, I told you about John Wesley last night. John, John Wesley used to have a little, a little room uh, with a desk on it overlooking the rooftops of London. And he said that I, I meet here each morning. Only God and I are here. And he teaches me from his word and then I teach the people what I've heard. But what he also said was this, I need at least two hours prayer a day. You know what Martin Luther said? Martin Luther said, if I don't have two hours prayer a day, the devil gets the advantage. William Carey, the, the father of modern missions, he said prayer, earnest prevailing prayer, is the fundamental basis of radical godliness. Now, when we listen to people like Whitfield and Wesley and Luther and Carey, th these are the giants. And we simply say to ourselves, you see, when we think about prayer, there's so much learning to do. There's so much growing to do. And this would probably be true of everybody. So the very act of praying is a declaration of deficiency. Then this, of course, not only comes from looking at Jesus and the example of other people, but we get this sense of deficiency when we look in Scripture. Daniel is a good case. Daniel was reading his Bible one day. Actually, he was reading the prophecy of Jeremiah. And he read in it some specific information concerning the fact that the children of Israel would be exiled for 70 years. And he didn't know this. And when he read that, it's very interesting to notice what he did. So he immediately turned to prayer. And you see, that's what the Bible will do to you. When the Bible reveals truth to you, it will reveal to you who God is and what he's doing. And it will show you what you are and what you're not doing. And you'll see such a gap between the two that the instinctive reaction is a sense of deficiency. God is so superb and, and I am so mediocre. God is so powerful and I am so weak. God, God is so bent on doing what he's doing and I'm so committed to doing what I'm going to do that I need, I, I, I say, Lord, I come humbly to you. That's the only way to come. And so prayer is, first of all, a declaration of deficiency. Secondly, prayer is a declaration of dependence. Now, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, Luke says, it just starts out, Father. Matthew says, it starts out, our Father in heaven. We, we are encouraged to speak to God as Father. Now, this, this can be interpreted a number of ways, but let me, let me stress three things for you here, at least three. First of all, when we think of God as Father, we're thinking of God as Creator. He is the originator of all things, including you and me. So when I think of God as my father, I think of him as my creator. Secondly, there'd be no point creating me if there wasn't a way of preserving or sustaining me. So God is not only the one who creates us, he is also the one who preserves us and sustains us through life. But unfortunately, even as he sustains us, we go our own way. And so he is then the one who intervenes and redeems us. So when we think of God as Father, we think of him as creator, sustainer, and redeemer. Now, each of those ideas, each of those pictures of God underlines our dependence. 
We are utterly dependent on him as creator, utterly dependent on him as sustainer, utterly dependent on him as redeemer. But there's another thing as well. Jesus, in his final instructions to his disciples, said, I'm going to pray the Father that he will send the Holy Spirit to you. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he who knows the will of God will reveal the will of God to you and will intercede for you. In other words, effective praying is praying in the will of God. How in the world do you pray in the will of God? And the answer is you pray in the will of God when you're in close communion with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knows the will of God. In close communion with the Holy Spirit, it reveals the will of God to you and you begin to pray in the Spirit. So the Father is the one who is the creator. He's the one who is the sustainer. He is the one who is the redeemer. And he is the one who is the giver of the Holy Spirit. And I want to tell you something. We are utterly dependent on him in all those areas. So when we begin to pray, we start out by saying, Oh, Father. And that is a declaration of dependence. Now, unfortunately, we're sometimes more in favor of independence than dependence. And do you know how I know? Because of our prayerlessness. Because our prayerlessness is basically tacitly saying, I can make it. I can do it. God says, you sure can't. You sure can't because I'm your creator, your sustainer, your redeemer, and I am the giver of the Holy Spirit. Because the other, the other side to him being father is this. A little bit further down in the Luke passage, uh, Jesus says, now, uh, you, you earthly fathers, you're, you're not perfect, but I'll say this about you. If your son asks you for bread, you won't give him a stone. And if he asks you for fish, he won't give you a serpent. Now, if you less than perfect fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit? And this point, of course, is this, that there's a wonderful sense of accessibility in the father that we can come to him with a tremendous sense of he really welcomes us into his presence in prayer. He's waiting for us to pray. He loves us to pray. <laughs> when we eventually get around to it, his, his response is, where have you been? What have you been doing? Been waiting here for you. But remember, his accessibility has another side to it. For he is our Father in heaven. So he is accessible, but he is awesome too. Some people have got the idea that because God says that we can call him father, actually we use the Aramaic word Abba, and Abba, as some people say, means like daddy or papa. Some people say, well, you know, we just pray to him like daddy or papa, but that, that can kind of get cutesy at times. It can get a little bit casual at times. And there's a balance to it, you see, when we're reminded that this is our father who is in heaven. When Solomon built his temple, it was a magnificent temple. It was a superb temple. But he was overwhelmed by the fact that he was asking God to dwell in this magnificent temple. But do you know what he said? He said, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much more this temple which I have built. What was happening to Solomon? Well, he built this awesome temple, but he realized how awesome God is. And so when we come to God... We come with a declaration of dependence. He's thoroughly accessible, but he is utterly awesome. And we come declaring our deficiency, and we come declaring our dependence, and he welcomes us into his presence. What a sad thing it is if we don't do it. 
Alfred Lord Tennyson, in one of his great epic poems about Arthur, said this, more things are wrought through prayer than this world knows of. More things are wrought through prayer than this world knows of. But then he goes on to say, and I can't quote it exactly, but he goes on to say basically this, that if men don't pray, what are they better than sheep or goats? <laughs> That's a bit blunt, isn't it? Of course, he put it poetically, so it didn't come across quite so blunt. But the point is this. The uniqueness of human beings is that we're more than physically alive. Vegetables are physically alive. We're more than vegetables. And the important thing about human beings is that we are more than physically and socially alive because animals are physically and socially alive. We are created spiritual beings and animals and vegetables aren't. So the uniqueness of our humanity is seen in the fact that we can function in the physical and the social and the spiritual realm. But if we don't function in the physical realm in worship, if we don't function in the physical realm in prayer, if we don't function in the physical realm in devotion, what are we better than sheep or goats? And so we ask ourselves the question, do I come before the Lord in worshipful prayer and prayerful worship and in so doing make a glad declaration of deficiency and dependence? But then there's a third thing. The third thing is that prayer is a declaration of desire. Prayer is a declaration of desire. Now what do we mean by that? Well, sometimes when we pray, we, we sort of give the idea that we're, we're, we're bringing a whole lot of requests to God. Sometimes it sounds a little bit like a shopping list. And sometimes, if we're really honest with ourselves, it sounds like it's a shopping list and we hope we're going to get bargain basement prices for it. But, but Jesus, Jesus explodes that idea of prayer. Uh, when he, when he, in his prayer, he teaches us how to pray, uh, he, he points out to us what our desires should be, what our legitimate desires in prayer really are, and there are six of them. First of all, he says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Now, there are two things that we need to understand if we're going to understand that expression. What do we mean by his name, or what in the world is hallowed? What we mean by his name is, his name is a description of himself. So when we talk about his name, we're really talking about him as he really is. When we're talking about hallowed, what we're saying is, hallowed incidentally is related to the word for holy or set apart. When we talk about hallowed be thy name, what we're really saying is, Lord, I want who you are to be honored, to be respected, to be revered. That is my deep desire. That's why I'm coming to you now, Father. I come with a tremendous sense of deficiency. I come with an overwhelming sense of dependence, but this is my honest desire. My honest desire, Lord, is to see in some way in the area of my influence that who you are should be honored, that you should be respected, Lord. And, and the fact of the matter is this. That, that where I live, or where I move, or where I have my being, they use your name, but sure don't use it in an honorable way. They talk about you, but it's not in a hallowed sense. Uh, they, they, they will say things about you, but it has absolutely nothing to do with, with a sense of awe and respect and reverence for you, Lord. This really gets me. It really gets me. And so this is my prayer, Lord. I would love to see in a very, very real sense 
that who you are would be honored in the area where I have any influence at all. That would be a great prayer. Here's the second desire. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Now there are two senses in which God's kingdom comes. God's kingdom is the area in which he rules and reigns as king. The area in which God rules and reigns as king. Now, people have different concepts of God. Some some have a concept of God as being a rather benign irrelevance. You know, he's he's, he's okay, you know, he's old, he's past it, he's decrepit. It's a little bit like an old sick relative whom we we visit once a while in a nursing home on Sunday afternoon. Nobody's going to say that about God, but that's the sort of impression they have. Some people have got the impression that God is, um, is, 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 a, is a wonderful sort of servant. He's a great waiter, and, and he is so good. He is so wonderful that if you don't need him, he, he makes no demand on you. But if you need him, all you've got to do is whistle, and he comes trotting up, and he shows up, and he does whatever you want. You see, these are sort of perceptions of God. In actual fact, the perception of God we need is that he is the king of kings. That he is the Lord of lords. And that he is in the business of moving and working in this world so that eventually, finally, irrevocably, and eternally, his rule and reign will be manifest. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. One day, his kingdom will come. And this sick, sad, sorry, sinful old world will come under his righteous rule. Think of that. Now this is your desire. Lord, I am looking for that day to come. That's what I'm looking for. I'm thinking in those terms. I live today in the light of tomorrow. But there's a second sense in which his kingdom comes. There's the ultimate final coming of the kingdom, but the Bible also teaches us that the kingdom is already encroaching into this world. It's rather like the tide coming in. It's coming in slowly. It's coming in relentlessly. It's coming in inexorably. And in greater and greater regions, the flooding of God's kingdom is coming. And God's reign is moving into an individual's life. And then it's moving into a couple's life. And then it moves into a family's life. And then it moves into a neighborhood. And then it moves into a church. And it begins to move out from the church. And his kingdom is coming. His kingdom is coming. And the deep desire of the worshipping person is, Lord, I want to see your name hallowed, honored, and I want your kingdom to come. Now Matthew also includes this idea. He includes the idea that your will will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. How often have you prayed that? Our Father, what in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. That will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, the only way you can pray that intelligently is to have some idea of how his will is done in heaven. How is his will done in heaven? 
Well, we know that there are all kinds of worshipping entities in the heavens. All the angels and the archangels and the cherubim and the seraphim and all those characters. We don't really understand who they are, but they're, they're kind of wild and weird and woolly. And, and they, they do God's will. And do you know how they do it? They do it joyfully. They do it fully. And they do it expeditiously. And when we pray, oh, I want your will to be done on earth as it is done in heaven, guess what? What we're really saying, Lord, I am looking for and I am praying for and I am working towards the coming of your kingdom, the hallowing of your name and the doing of your will. Oh, by the way, you can't pray this if you're not praying it for yourself as well. So Lord, may I hallow your name May I be involved in the coming of your kingdom. And may I be doing your will as it's done in heaven. Now those are the first three desires. But then the next three desires, very interesting. The next three desires are give us this day our daily bread. Have you ever noticed there's a redundancy in there? Give us this day doesn't need daily after it. That's a redundancy. But it must be an inspired redundancy. Well, actually, it's because it's a little difficult to translate the original language there. The thrust of it is this. Give us on a regular basis what is necessary to meet our physical needs. Give us on a regular basis what is necessary to meet our physical needs. Oh, by the way, none of the prayer that the Lord taught us, none of the prayer that the Lord taught us is in the first person singular. It's all in the plural. Our Father. Give us this day. Lead us. Not into temptation. Forgive us. You see, th this is why those guys needed so long to pray because it doesn't take you long if you're just praying for you. But if you begin to think in terms of all the people who have physical needs in the area of your influence. And if you begin to say, Lord, there's a very real sense in which you can meet on a regular basis the deep physical needs of people. That's what I want you to do. And then, of course, he says, give us this day our daily bread. In addition to that, he says, and forgive us as we also forgive those who sin against us or trespass against us. What that's really saying is this, there are a lot of physical needs, but there are a lot of social needs as well. There's an awful lot of forgiving needed, and there's a lot of forgiveness needed. And the forgiving and the forgiveness are directly related. Lord, when I look at our relationships, when I look at our relationships, wow, there's a lot of garbage going on around here. And when I look at the garbage that's going on in relationships, Lord, there's an awful lot you need to forgive. Oh, Lord, would you please move in the situation where this stuff is going on with your forgiving grace? But Lord, Lord, we've also got to come to terms with the fact that there's a lot of people need to be forgiving a lot of people. Lord, would you then not only bring forgiveness to bear in people's lives, but would you give an attitude of forgivingness in people's minds? Now you can see why these guys prayed so long, because they were, they, they were praying for all the people with fractured relationships around them. Can you, can you imagine how long it would take us to pray if we prayed for all the difficult relationships that we know about? Can you imagine how long it would take? And yet, is, isn't that what he's saying? 
So, so we come before him with, with our desires. Lord, I want to see something done about physical needs. I want something done about relational needs. And Lord, I want to see something done about spiritual needs as well. Because Lord, this world of ours is full of temptations. It's full of traps. It's full of potholes. It's full of booby traps. And, and I am so stupid. And, and folks around me, are, they're, they're a bit like me too. And we are so good at rushing into all kinds of problems, finding ourselves seduced into situations we shouldn't be. And Lord, this is my prayer. Lord, would you protect us in these things? Now, the wording here is a little difficult. Lead us not into temptation. It sounds as if God is saying, okay, now I'm going to lead you into temptation. We say, oh, no, 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 don't lead me into temptation. No, that's not the point. The, but the point is this, that there are temptations on every hand. Lord, see to it that we do not succumb these things. Now, can you think of anybody who's in real danger of succumbing to temptation? Can you think of anybody? Like, like you and like me and like your family? You say, yes, I can. Well, then it is perfectly appropriate to pray for them, to pray for their physical needs, to pray for their relational needs, and to pray for their spiritual needs. In that same poem, The Passing of Arthur, Arthur Alfred Lord Tennyson has this wonderful expression. He says that prayer binds with chains of gold people to the feet of God. Isn't that a great expression? Binds with chains of gold people to the feet of God. I was up early this morning, beautiful morning, went to get my exercise, did my praying while I was exercising. I can do that at the speed I exercise now. <laughs> I need to pray to get me through the exercise. Lord, get me through this, and I promise I'll never do it again. That sort of, that sort of thing. I got back, and Jill was there getting some breakfast ready, and she said, where have you been? I said, I've been getting some exercise. And she said, was it good? And I said, it was a great time, and it was a beautiful morning. And I, and I said, do you know what I did? She said, no. I said, I bound all my grandchildren with chains of gold to the feet of God. You can do that. Bind your children with chains of gold to the feet of God. Bind your neighbors with chains of gold to the feet of God. And you know what you'd be doing? You'd be responding to what God revealed to himself. He said, well, once you would do this, well, you should do it regularly. Get up in the morning, one way or another, pray. Pray in your car, don't close your eyes. Pray. Pray at mealtimes, that's a good idea. Pray at mealtimes, that's a good habit to get into. There's no old preacher down in Chicago once. He was in a little restaurant and he, he bowed his head in prayer. And when he looked up, they'd put another man at his table. And the other man said to him, what are you doing? He said, I was just thanking the Lord for my food. Well, he said, I don't do that. I just dig right in. He said, yeah, so does my dog. <laughs> it wasn't me. I didn't say that. I wouldn't say that. I don't have a dog. <laughs> That's not my dog. <laughs> you, can, you, you can pray in the morning, you can pray at mealtime. We, we should pray continuously. You, you know, praying continuously, it's like breathing. You breathe continuously, but you don't know you're breathing until you run up the stairs and then you suddenly concentrate on it. You, you develop an attitude of prayer, an attitude of 
uh, deficiency, an attitude of dependence, an attitude of desire. It's just under the surface, and then something comes, and guess what? It, it is so powerful in your life that it suddenly, suddenly this instinctive prayer pops to the surface. You pray continue. You pray regularly. You pray continue. You pray corporately. You come together in prayer, and when, when, when somebody leads in prayer, you don't just drift off. You, you, you concentrate on what they're praying. You're saying, amen, amen, amen. You can even say it out aloud. You may wake somebody up, but, but you, you can do that. You pray privately. You pray privately in times of pain. You pray privately in times of perplexity. You pray privately when you're under pressure. Let me ask you a question in closing. Would you say to the Lord what his disciples did? Lord, teach me to pray. Would you do that? Would you also promise that if he teaches you, that you do it? And the extent that you do, you'd be worshipping. For worship is not something that we do just once a week in a special place. Worship is the stuff of life. It is relating to who God is revealing himself to be on a continuous basis. And I go about my life as a worshiper and God is looking for worshipers has he found one in you well let's pray together Lord my prayer is very simple and it is this that by your Holy Spirit you would take this word and apply it in individual hearts in individual ways so that we would respond in a way that honors you and we become the conduit of your blessing on earth. In Christ's name, amen.